There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello, everybody. Today, in this episode, we continue our story of Bill Miner. When we last left off, Miner had robbed a second CPR train near modern-day Monte Creek, whose winery now adorns their labels with Miner's face. But Miner was unaware that it was this unsuccessful robbery that would turn him into the province's most wanted man and result in one of the most famous manhunts in Canada up to that point in time. This is Season 6, Episode 14, Bill Miner, The Gentleman Robber, Part 2. Today's book recommendation is the same one as last episode. It is titled, Interred with Their Bones, Bill Miner in Canada, by Peter Grauer, and published in 2006 by Partners in Publishing. Early on the 9th of May, 1906, local authorities were roused from their beds with the news that another CPR train had been robbed. Within hours, a posse had formed. CPR agents, local police, and indigenous scouts were assembled to track the fleeing bandits. Quickly, they picked up the trail, and while the CPR crew was questioned, an advance party of two indigenous trackers, Michelle Comp and Alec Ignas, as well as Constable William Fernie from Kamloops, set out after the bandits. It was not difficult for the authorities to quickly come to the conclusion that the same fellas that had robbed the CPR train in mission had most likely struck again. For Fernie's advance party, while it certainly was no easy going tracking the bandits through the untamed Okanagan wilderness, it was made easier by the fact that one of the bandits, apparently the mysterious third partner, was wearing hobnail boots, which left an imprint everywhere the bandits traveled. 
This, of course, allowed the pursuers to remain hot on the heels of the fugitives. They even followed the tracks to an abandoned shack, which had clearly been used by the bandits to change into different clothes and to divide the loot, or what little of it they got. Fernie's team was forced to rest by the end of the ninth, but they sent word back that they were on the hunt and not far behind the bandits. The next day, they continued the pursuit, well in the lead of the rest of the authorities. And as word spread of the robbery, and who the suspects might be, and the fact that the authorities were hot on their heels, the posse ballooned in size. All sorts of characters joined in, hoping to get a share of the reward money, now at $11,500. Miner and his crew were no fools, though, especially when it came to tracking, and they were constantly setting blind trails, backtracking, splitting up, and setting fires in different directions to confuse their pursuers. By the 11th of May, a Friday, as rain began to fall steadily, more indigenous trackers, more CPR private security, more British Columbia police, more Northwest Mounted police, and even a team of bloodhounds had been added to the chase. Everyone was heavily armed. Over the course of that weekend, different parties scattered throughout the territory east of Kamloops, scouting through thick brush, steep hills, imposing mountains, winding ravines, and open cattle ranges. Yet it seemed like the bandits were always just out of reach. By Monday, the rain had not let up, and everyone was exhausted. The bandits had still not been found. Incredibly, As the pursuers dropped off one by one, Constable Fernie continued the hunt. Though born in England, Fernie had cowboyed on the tough and violent Chilcotin Plateau and had also served in South Africa during the Boer War. He was used to hard riding and long days. It was on the afternoon of that very Monday when Fernie was just leaving a ranch house after questioning the inhabitants that he walked smack into none other than Miner and his criminal associates, Billy Dunn and their mysterious third partner, Louis Colcoon, a former schoolteacher. All three of them were armed. Not wanting to spook the trio, Fernie pretended like he was just out hunting and engaged in some conversation about the weather and local game. Fernie, in fact, played up his British accent to appear like an eccentric Englishman out for some adventure on the frontier. After some conversation, Fernie went on his way, and after riding out of sight, he spurred his horse into a gallop and rode hard to where he knew that a detachment of Mounties had set up camp for the night. He found them. He told them who he had found, and the entire party remounted and set out right away. Once again, because of the hobnailed boots worn by the bandits, Fernie and the Mounties were able to pick up the tracks. Soon, they came upon a clearing surrounded by dense thicket with a dry riverbed running right through it. Fernie called out to see if anyone might be in the riverbed, and he heard a reply. As his posse crested the ridge of the riverbed, they looked down on none other than the three men, Miner, Dunn, 
and Colcoon. While tense, at first the men claimed they were prospectors, but Fernie called them out, saying he didn't believe them. And then a tense period of silence ensued, when finally Shorty Dunn yelled, They got us! and took off for the brush while firing at the officers, a pistol in each of his hands. Miner and Colcoon smartly didn't move a muscle, and while three of the Mounties chased Dunn into the brush, the others trained their guns on the two remaining bandits. Dunn, meanwhile, was running from cover to cover. He fired back with a Colt revolver and a German Luger, a 1902 model semi-automatic. This meant he could actually fire quite a few rounds, and the Mounties were surprised at the firepower coming from one man. Yet Dunn was fighting a losing battle, and soon he took a bullet in the leg and collapsed into a muddy, watering hole. Incredibly, even after Dunn was escorted back to his camp, Miner still professed to be a prospector. Despite this claim, the Mounties knew they had Miner and his gang, and the now-captured bandits were escorted back to civilization. By the time they had made it to a roadhouse hotel in the Nicola Valley, word had already spread. The police, in fact, had a hard time turning away visitors, as many people who had befriended Bill Miner, of course, as George Edwards, wanted to come and attest on his behalf that he was indeed no train robber. Some even vaguely threatened rescue attempts. Of course, the posse was well-armed and turned that roadhouse into an armed camp. The next day, Tuesday, May 12th, the bandits were escorted into Kamloops, and by the time the procession had arrived, it had become a parade. Town dignitaries, local law enforcement, other members of the posse, CPR agents, and general lookers-on all followed the disheveled yet victorious posse and their prisoners. The three men were immediately locked up in the Kamloops jail. Bill Miner, despite professing to still be George Edwards the prospector, had been caught. All of British Columbia was now paying attention to Kamloops in the days following the trio's first imprisonment. They gave their statements, all of them claiming still to be innocent prospectors. They had their photos taken. They were allowed to wash up and eat, and Shorty Dunn's wound was attended to. By this point, the authorities were utterly convinced that they had Bill Miner. One of the CPR detectives, in fact, ordered Miner to strip down, and in front of the lead investigators, they matched every reported scar, tattoo, and bodily feature to past reports. Meanwhile, every newspaper reported extensively on the robbery, the pursuit, the capture, the bandits, including their photos being published everywhere, and even the pre-trial activities. Folks, before we continue, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. 
So if you want to donate five bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and elsewhere, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. And thank you to everyone who has donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. The trial began on Monday, May 28th, and the courtroom was packed full of people, friends of minor, residents of Kamloops, dignitaries, and the curious from across British Columbia, Pinkerton agents from the United States, and even a warden from San Quentin Prison who had arrived to identify minor. It was standing room only, and many couldn't even get in. The case was going to be argued in front of a grand jury, and the lawyer for the three bandits was Alex McIntyre, and he positioned his defense around the fact that the police who captured the bandits did so without legitimate warrants, hoping to convince the jury that the police had effectively bungled the arrest, so much so that the bandits should be let go. He also tried to intimate that the police had fired first, not Shorty Dunn, thus causing Dunn to react the way he had. As the days went on, McIntyre also argued that the entire trial was corrupted due to established prejudices as a result of the wide-scale reporting on the case. McIntyre was pulling on any string possible. In fact, even after being identified by the warden from San Quentin, McIntyre produced an affidavit from Bill Minor, still claiming to be George Edwards. McIntyre argued that because so many people were identifying his client George Edwards as Bill Minor, the case was already prejudicial towards the defendants. Incredibly, after three days, McIntyre's devious strategy worked a little bit as the jury ended up deliberating for hours, much to the frustration of the judge overseeing the trial. It appeared as if one juror refused to convict the men. With the jury unable to come to a unanimous decision, a new trial was called for Thursday, May 31st. However, this time, the defendants would not have the same luck. Within 24 hours of the new trial, all three were found guilty of all charges, and the judge sentenced Minor and Dunn to imprisonment for life and Colquhoun to 25 years. Now, in a touch of irony, the prisoners were transported to the jail in New Westminster via rail. Crowds gathered along the way, and at every stop, People curious to get a glimpse of the now legendary train bandits tried to peek into the rail car. The prisoners were escorted by basically a small army consisting of police, private investigators, railroad agents, and Mounties. One of the most colorful moments was when the engineer from the CPR train that had been robbed near Mission boarded the prison train to say hello to Bill Miner. Apparently, the engineer, Nathan Scott, said, Well, Billy, when are you going to ride my train again? And Miner replied, Don't worry, my boy. I may be along sooner than you think. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Think. Despite this ominous reply and the general excitement and the more than jubilant crowds, the men were successfully delivered to the BC Penitentiary. This penitentiary was first opened in 1878. It was built along the banks of the mighty Fraser River, just outside of the former British Columbia capital of New Westminster. The men had been caught, brought to jail, and everyone involved congratulated themselves on a job well done. End of story, right? Nope, not quite. Miner was a popular prisoner perhaps the most popular in the history of that penitentiary. He had regular visits, a constant stream of letters. He never ran out of cash. Gifts were frequently arriving for him. It was clear that many outside the prison walls adored him. Let's not forget as well that Miner had spent many years in San Quentin. He was old hat when it came to surviving life in prison. He was also very friendly and affable, and even the guards thought him no more than a harmless old man. In fact, in 1907, when a number of the officers who had arrested him showed up to the prison, Miner met with them and shook every one of their hands, and even told one of them, I am glad to see you, my boy. You know this is no personal matter between you and me. It is your business to catch me, and if I am not smart enough to get out of your way, well, I deserve to be caught. Yet from the minute Miner walked through the gates of the BC penitentiary, he was already planning his escape. His plan was to lull the prison into complicity by portraying himself as a beaten, non-threatening old man, one that had even recently rediscovered his Christian faith, hoping that the prison officials would let down their guard at some point allowing him to make his escape. Meanwhile, as his guards and the prison staff grew into complacency, Miner assembled all the materials he needed to make his escape, primarily through purchasing off other inmates. Miner's plan was set in motion in July 1907 when he was transferred to a work detail outside in the brickyard now, while still part of the prison complex, the brickyard didn't have as well-fortified walls as the interior of the prison. Why he was transferred into this position is still kind of confusing. He complained of suffering from swollen feet and somehow convinced the warden that working outside on his feet would help ease his pain. Minor, in fact, also had an opportunity to complain of his feet's condition to none other than the warden's daughter, who then spoke to her father on Miner's behalf. Regardless, in the brickyard, Miner was able to pass messages to friends, and these messages laid out the plan. On the night of August 7th, 
several sneaky figures were able to successfully dig a small tunnel into the brickyard, large enough for a single person to escape through. The next day, Miner went about his work in the brickyard as normal. Three other convicts had also been brought into the plan, and the fact that four men were going to escape in broad daylight was audacious, to say the very least. With only two guards in the yard, the convicts waited for them to be lulled into another day of boredom. When the opportunity arose in the latter part of the afternoon, the four convicts dove one after the other into the pre-built tunnel, and as quick as that, all four were on the run. At this point, the record on Minor is very vague. It was as if he disappeared into thin air. It's likely he had friends waiting for him at some point in or around the city of New Westminster, and within days of his escape, Minor was in fact back in the United States. An inquiry into Minor's escape made it all the way to Ottawa, where none other than Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier openly questioned how a convict like Minor could escape from BC's penitentiary. Frankly, questions still abound. Had he bribed a guard, or two guards, or more? Who was really involved? Was it just a well-planned and well-timed escape? Whatever the speculation was, Miner had gotten away. Incredibly, Miner returned to his life of train and stagecoach robbing back in the United States, and true to form, he was caught. And then true to form, he escaped from jail. And then, true to form... He was caught once again, where Miner finally passed away in a Georgia prison in 1911. The legend of Bill Miner, the gentleman robber, turned into an early 20th century tale of Robin Hood. As the years went on, his exploits became more and more exaggerated, and his character more and more equated with the legendary outlaw of Sherwood Forest. It became a badge of honor to say one had met Miner, and in almost all accounts, interactions with Miner were always positive. In many ways, Miner encapsulated his own legend in a conversation he once had with a priest prior to his escape from the B.C. penitentiary. He said to the priest, I do not consider it a crime to lift money from rich corporations. It is not a crime. It is not a sin. It is neither immoral nor wrong. On the contrary, I feel it to be my duty to lift money from rich corporations and give it to the poor. Many a mortgage on a poor man's home have I helped to pay with money I have taken from corporations. I am what I am, and I have done what I have done, but I can look God and man in the face unashamed. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.